here with uh, Father Robert Barron, the rector of Mundelein Seminary. And Father, you just came out with a new series. Tell us about that. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's on the new evangelization, and it's a uh, documentary lasting about 90 minutes. And it's based on trips we took um, about a year and a half ago to Australia and to England. And um, I was over there to roll out the previous series, the Catholicism series. And I gave a series of talks and all that. But we brought the film crew, and they filmed some of my talks. But they also interviewed a lot of people on the ground who are doing work. We talked to church leaders in both countries. Then we interviewed a lot of um, you know, leading cultural analysts here in this country, George Weigel and Ross Douthat from the New York Times, uh, Brad Gregory, who's a great professor at Notre Dame. And we tried to get a feel for you know, what's happening culturally. And then we took all that material and we eventually wove it together as this new video. So uh, I'm really pleased EWTN is going to premiere it uh, tonight. Tell us about Ross Dolphit. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy. I don't know if you read much of him, but he'd be one of the only conservative voices in the New York Times editorial page. He was also, the, I think, the youngest full-time uh, columnist for the New York Times. Ross is now maybe in his early 40s, I'm guessing, but he's been writing for maybe 10 years. I think one of the most insightful uh, commentators, and he's deeply sympathetic to classical uh, Catholicism and brings that uh, perspective to his cultural analysis. So his book called Bad Religion you know, came out about a year ago. Really good book on the 20th century and what happened, especially to Catholicism. So that book caught my eye, and then I knew him from his writing. So we approached him and said, would you be willing to be interviewed for this? And he was very gracious. And he's great. He's great. What do you feel like when you watch the news or TV and, and the message is being presented? Sometimes I get angry, frustrated. What do you feel? Oh, yeah, I can feel that, too. I always say that, you know, our, our story is being told by the wrong people in the wrong way. Uh, people are fascinated by Roman Catholicism. They always have been. And that has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit, I think. That there's a fascination for it, even on the part of our enemies. But we shouldn't allow them to dictate the terms and tell the story. We have to seize the initiative and tell the story as it should be told. So I get frustrated on an almost daily basis when I read the newspapers in Chicago and New York and elsewhere. Uh, but we can't just, I think, grouse from the sidelines. I think we've got to get in there and actively uh, tell our own story. I know this is maybe out of your field, but what do you think about like modern movies and everything? I kind of feel that frustration there. You see, why can't you tell a, a story Champ not in a syrupy way, but championing yeah. family life and things. Sure, and that's, that's a source of frustration. I, my approach has been more to say, okay, let's find the positive seeds of the, of the faith in these films. Even as you balk at so many other things in them, say, well, okay, but that element is of the gospel. That element is actually redolent of what we're about. So I use that approach sometimes. Um, but it's, it's always a mixed bag, and you have to sort of pick out what's, what's good from what's bad. Um, but the church fathers did that, you know, go way back. They would find the semina verbi, they called them, right, the seeds of the word, that were embedded within a somewhat distorted culture. Or I think, you know, one of my great heroes is Robert Sokolowski, still teaching at Catholic U, great philosophy professor. And years ago, when I was a kid, he used an image that's never left me. He said, around the time of, like, the Reformation and the Enlightenment, this integrated Catholic whole blew up and exploded, and the pieces often distorted, fell here and there, you know. And what we find now as we walk through this landscape are these little kind of shards and pieces of Catholicism, often distorted and unintegrated. But we can say, hey, hey, that right there, that's part of what used to be an integrated Catholic vision of life. And see the one over there? 
that should be related to that one. That's also part of the Catholic vision. So we can affect a sort of reintegration of these Catholic elements that are here and there in the culture. That's what I've been trying to do. And how do you balance, because uh, sometimes I get this question of maybe you have people that really want to flee the culture, or jump yeah. in a bunker, and yet engage it, or even participate in some of the, trying to find the good that's there. Mm -hmm. How do we know when it's tainting us, distorting us? And yeah. No, it's a good question, and we have to be careful. That's why I think anyone involved in this needs a good spiritual director, a good confessor. We've got to be aware of that danger. Um, as you go wandering around this landscape <laughs> looking for the Catholic pieces, yeah. you can be uh, beguiled by or misled by other elements in it. So I, I buy that concern. That's why we need good spiritual directors and confessors and conversation partners. Nevertheless, I think we should do it. It would be wrong for us just to, get, um, just to retreat behind the walls. To me, that's not a Catholic spirit. That's more of a sectarian spirit. And the church at its best has always resisted that. Go back to, you know, Origen and go back to uh, Chrysostom and Jerome and then come up to the great medieval figures and then all the way to John Henry Newman, John Paul II. Our great people didn't do that. They opted, I think, for this more confident uh, engagement of the culture. Look at John Paul picking his way through uh, phenomenology. You know, a lot of people were misled by elements in phenomenology. I mean, John Paul picked his way through it and found what was wonderful integrated it back to Thomas Aquinas. Same with Edith Stein. That was her project. I mean, to study under Husserl, take in phenomenology, but find the elements that linked it to the great Catholic tradition, and then that's, that's her work. Those are the people I really admire. That's a good point, because some of the, even the philosophers themselves fell away, um, like Shaler and... Yeah. That's a good example, right, that Max Shaler, who was a Catholic, then fell away. Um, you know, many others who... Because Husserl himself became a, uh, he was a Jew by birth and by formation, then became a Lutheran Christian, and drew a lot of his students into Christianity. Right. And then someone like Edith Stein became a saint, you know. Yeah. And someone like D.J. von Hildebrand, who was a, a disciple of Husserl as well. But then, as you say, a Shaler uh, fell away. But then again, whom did John Paul II use? But Shaler in his doctoral work. Right. So he picked his way through Max Shaler. And a lot of the theology of the body, as you know, comes up out of Max Shaler. So that's a good example of how it's done. And John Paul obviously was able to avoid what uh, caused problems for Shaler, but yet he used what was good and beautiful in it. That's the model. And it's almost like, you know, we're so media-driven and we're so drenched in it, so much part of our life. If the church isn't there in that world communicating in it, we're really, we're not speaking to the world, right? Quite right. And we can't... Uh, we can't sit on the sidelines. I think we have to be in the conversation. And see, the Catholic voice should be in the center of the conversation. It's the anchoring voice, if you want. That was Newman's idea. It always has moved me in the idea of a university, is that the theological voice should be at the center of the university disciplines, not just one among many. You know, I mean, today it's not even one among many. Newman said it shouldn't be just that. It should be at the center of the conversation. It's the organizing principle of all the sciences. That's the role that the Catholic voice should play in the culture. Mm -hmm. But see, I, one of, here's one of my complaints. In the years after Vatican II, we assumed a sort of falsely modest position, if you want, vis-a-vis -vis the culture. You know, we come hat in hand to the culture, hoping the culture finds us acceptable. I, I have no time for that. I think we go out with fife and drum. I think we go out with great confidence to meet the culture, and we say, hey, yeah, that's good. That's part of what we're talking about, and that's not so good. But I think we should be 
confidently in the driver's seat of that cultural conversation, not coming hat in hand, hoping for the culture to take us seriously. That's why I've always complained. It goes back to Friedrich Schleiermacher, the founder of modern liberal Protestantism, who wrote that famous book, Speeches on Religion to Its Cultured Despisers. See, that's the liberal program, is to say, who despises us in the culture? Let's give speeches to them to make sure that they can take us seriously. Well, I don't want them setting the agenda. I don't think our despisers should set the agenda for the conversation. We should set the agenda, you know. Now, we invite the cultured despisers. We reach out with great love, and we reach out uh, looking for the semina verbi and all of that. Mm -hmm. But we don't allow them to dictate terms. See, I think that's been the great battle in the years after Vatican II. Uh, we inherited a kind of Catholicized Schleiermacherianism, <laughs> I put it that way. You know, we, we accepted that way of doing it, and I think that was a problem. Let me ask you, I, I know you do movie reviews and things. Um, you know, sometimes I wonder, is, is the Catholic vision just simply to present the truth of the things? You know, we kind of glamorize mm-hmm. and make evil attractive or sin seductive in some ways, and it's almost like... Hey, you know, we could have movies about this stuff, but show it honestly, right? Is yeah. that is that at kind of the heart of the Catholic vision? Yeah, I think so. The Catholic vision, you're right. It's it's about truth and honesty. Someone like Flannery O'Connor, who's a hero of mine, you know, her stories are anything but sentimental or syrupy or or pious. Just the contrary, they are very blunt about human dysfunction and about sin. And a lot of you know more pious readers that that approach O'Connor find her very off-putting because she's so in your face. But it's biblical. I mean, read the Bible. The Bible's very blunt and clear about human sin and dysfunction. And what it shows, though, is, is how, um, how negative all that is. Uh, that's why in some of the movies, I, I think a lot of the movies actually, well, they're full of degradation and how awful, but they're trying to say something about the morality. You follow a certain path, you're going to end up there in this really dark place. So I think it's okay to show that the way the Bible does and the way our great artists do um, if you do it with the right moral perspective, you know. Um, If you're doing it just simply out of exploitation or or sensationalism, and there's obviously a lot of that, but if you're doing it with a moral purpose, a good example of the Coen brothers, I think, um, who are very fine filmmakers, and their movies almost always have a moral edge to them, you know, and they're showing a lot of the darkness of the human condition, but with a moral intentionality. So I think that's that's Flannery O'Connor. Let's uh, shift to talk about uh, Pope Francis. Uh, he's making a huge impact, and I'm just looking from the sidelines and saying, I, I'm trying to understand what yeah. makes him so uh, powerful, yeah. and, you know, why people are listening to him so much. It's fascinating. I was over there doing commentary for NBC at the Conclave. So uh, I'll tell you one thing that every single commentator over there had wrong was Bergoglio. No one predicted him. We were all talking about uh, Cardinal Scola and Cardinal Ouellette, and we're talking about Cardinal Dolan even and O'Malley. No one picked Bergoglio. Let me say this one thing. They had a poll here at the network, and one of our Protestant employees, who's a part-time minister, he picked Bergoglio no, simply on the <laughs> fact that he read an article where Bergoglio was a runner-up. The previous yeah. it was that simple, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but nobody was paying attention to that. He, I'll give him full credit. <laughs> everyone over there, of course, knew about the runner-up thing, but everyone says he's too old. Seventy-six. Yeah, yeah. They were not going to elect a guy seventy-six. Yeah. So no one predicted him. So he came out. I remember, and I was on there with George Weigel, who was the other commentator. And when he was first announced, you know, it's hard to hear. And what are they saying? And 
And George said, it's Bergoglio. And that's, all right, it's Bergoglio. And so he was kind of a mystery man when he emerged. And I don't know if you remember when he first came out, he stood for about a minute without saying anything, without moving. <laughs> I just sort of stood there. And it looked like he was, he was in shock. Maybe he was. And I remember saying, to myself, say something, do something. But then he started talking and, and, and those great gestures. And he's a bit of a spiritual genius, really, isn't he? I mean, the way he's able to grab the imagination with the provocative gesture and with the telling word. So ever since he started that night, you know, asking the great crowd there to pray for him. And I remember vividly that huge crowd full of enthusiasm just suddenly going silent when he asked them to pray for him. How moving that was. Um, and then all these gestures he's made have been so powerful. You know, I was in the square, and what I felt at those, that moment was uh, I just felt really united with him and that yeah. he was united with all of us, like, in a mission, that he was leading. There was something very energetic and like a coiled spring, you know, yeah. <laughs> ready to go. That's right. You were there, too. Were you, you were with the people in the square, or you were up at the, at the EWTN? Yeah, I was in the square, just pretty, pretty close to the, yeah. yeah. We were up. The NBC was up, you know, kind of a little further back and higher up, so I wasn't right down there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was electric that night. Yeah. It was electric. And what about the gestures, and why are they so meaningful to people? We know, of course, you're in the Franciscan family, and that name, Francis, his first great gesture, taking that name. And I think he's just been living out the Franciscan sort of vision. Francis embracing the leper. Uh, Pope Francis embracing the man with a disfigured face. Francis going you know, with the poor. Pope Francis going into the, the slums in, in Rio. Uh, Francis living in simplicity and poverty. Pope Francis driving the, what is it, the Ford Focus or something, <laughs> not the Vatican limo. Um, he's got a genius for that. And it's not just, I don't mean like superficial PR. I think it's really living consistently the Christian life. I'll give you an example. My brother, you know, is a like me, born and raised Catholic and everything, but not exactly you know, on fire for the faith. But he saw the crowds in Rio uh, at the Pope gathered at World Youth Day, and um, he said, "Wow, wow, something is going on here. What, what's, what is this?" And he was like newly fascinated by him, and that's happening to a lot of people, don't you? With with Francis, he's grabbed their religious imagination, um, you know, and then these. Um, the paying his bill at the hotel, you know, and uh, these gestures of simplicity. Even, you know, saying that he's not going to make Monsignors anymore uh, and to get away from careerism, et cetera. It's very powerful stuff. And, and that is not just Franciscan. That's more Jesuit, too. He's a Jesuit, obviously. And Jesuits, you know, eschew honors and honorifics and titles. And so I think that's part of the Jesuit spirit, too. It's, you know, it's that back-to-basics evangelicalism, I would say which you find in Francis and Dominic back in the 13th century. You found it in Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century, and you're finding it with this man, a back-to-basics evangelicalism. Simple life, poverty, trust in the Lord, um, and that's grabbed people's religious imaginations. What do you think uh, of his cultural background? How does that help to form him? Something I really don't have a feel for, like South America, Argentina, or even some of his Italian background. How does that shaping some of the presentation of the faith, you think? Oh, I think it is. And I, I'm like you. I wouldn't be a great expert on, on that stuff. But uh, I think, sure, the Latin American uh, matrix has, has shaped him. And even the most recent statements in the um, uh, exhortation, you know, about capitalism and so on, I think a lot of that was born of a Latin American take where 
capitalism is more rampant and uncontrolled than it is, let's say, in much of the West. Uh, when I read some of those statements about capitalism and a trickle-down economy and so on, I thought, well, okay, but you know, in, in Europe and in, in America, capitalism is much more reined in. But then I reminded myself, but in Latin America, it's not the case. It's, it's a little more uncontrolled. So I think some of that rhetoric is coming out of that Latin American experience. Also, I think the, uh, the struggle with um, the evangelical religions and you know, taking people away from Catholicism so that, that evangelicalism that's on the street, I think he got that very much from his Latin American background. Um, of course, studying Germany, uh, didn't get his doctorate, but did doctoral studies in Germany. So he certainly has a sense of the, the European cultural tradition. He's an Italian, too, by heritage, speaks the language, of course, very well. So interesting player, you know, the first pope from the New World, uh, a Spanish-speaking pope primarily. That's going to shape his consciousness in a distinctive way. Um, he's a fascinating man, no question about it. What does the new evangelization look like uh, for a kind of normal family-type people? I mean, we interview here at EWTN a lot of people doing kind of extraordinary initiatives. But what does it look like for, you know, mother-father raising a number of kids? Yeah. I, you know, I think of new ardor. That was the first thing John Paul said. It's, the, the new evangelization has got to be new in ardor, enthusiasm, a missionary sensibility. Every Catholic is a missionary. Uh, and that's, that's the most ordinary Catholic to the Pope. Everyone's a missionary. So with that consciousness that as you go out into your workplace, you go out with your friends, go out socially, you go out to your school, you're going out as a, as a Catholic missionary. And that can mean for ordinary people, you know, wear a symbol of the faith on your person. Uh, let the language of the faith be on your lips readily. Don't be reticent about it. How many people at work know you're a Catholic? I'm not saying proselytize them or beat them over the head with it. But how many people know you're a Catholic? Are you able to say, look, this is why I do this. This What motivates me is my faith. I think in all those ways you can be a missionary. And it's a, a shift in consciousness. You know, I'm not just here to cultivate my personal spirituality, as important as that is. I'm here to bear it to the world. Uh, and that can be, as you say, on a grand scale, or it can be on a very uh, small scale. They're, they're all part of the new evangelization. And extremely impactful. You know, I remember before joining the Franciscans, there was a Protestant guy, family man working where I was working, but he was a very quiet guy, but he just radiated like a strength of virtue, and every now and then he'd talk about his church or his faith, and that had a huge impact on me. Absolutely. That's how it works. That's how it works. He says he wasn't proselytizing, but he was showing by his virtue that Christ had made a difference in his life, and when pressed or asked, he would say it. He'd say, that's why I'm this way. Because I, I often say, you know, it's, and this is Pope Francis too, you evangelize through your joy. Yeah. And then when people come to you and say, why are you that, how'd you get that way? You're able to tell them. It comes from this friendship with Jesus Christ. And I'd like to introduce you to this friend of mine, you know, who has made such a difference in my life. And that, that doesn't have to be, we Americans are so reticent about it because we live in a religiously diverse culture, and we know that you, know, you don't talk about politics and religion. But it doesn't have to be rancorous. I think you can do it in a way that's inviting, you know. And that's Pope Francis, uh, lead with joy, lead with the relationship. And then you draw people in to the conditions for the possibility of that joy. Where'd that come from? Explain that to me. Now you get into doctrine, morals, conversion, change of life, all that, you know. 
But what draws people is the beauty of the life. I was, I've been reading the, his new letter on the joy of the gospel, and he does have a section there about you know people that are suffering and very difficult, so, and it's hard to have joy. But he said even there, there's, I think he used the word glimpses or hints of it. And because uh, I remember coming here as a postulant and hearing about now, be joyful, be joyful. That's why you can't command us to be joyful. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> what do you tell people that it just feel like they're they are struggling, and as he put it, they're in a Lent with no Easter, you know? Yeah. <laughs> No, right, you can't command it. That's right, it becomes artificial. But yeah. uh, it should come naturally from this depth of friendship. And as we all know in the Christian spiritual life, that friendship can involve suffering because it's friendship with the crucified Jesus. And it means he wants to live his life in you. And we all know that, that that means the cross will, will play a role in your life. That doesn't stand athwart joy, you know, in the authentic sense. Joy means that peace that comes from union with God. And then, see, the Christian can see his suffering precisely as ingredient in that uh, relationship. So it doesn't mean like a superficial joy or a commanded joy, as you say, but one that grows organically out of this friendship that will always involve the cross. If I look around your office here, we have the cross everywhere. And that's true most uh, of Catholics. You have the cross everywhere. But we take that seriously. It means that Christ wants to live his life in me. And that means the cross will be uh, on display. Can you uh, talk a little bit more, too, about the role of the Holy Spirit? Because John, in attracting people to Pope Francis, to the gospel message, John Paul said the same thing. They asked him, why are so many young people coming to you? He said, it's the Holy Spirit. And because sometimes you see, you hear in the media, you feel like, well, they're misunderstanding what he's saying. They're twisting it. They're running another direction. Mm -hmm. And yet I'm thinking at the same time, well, you can go to another church head, obviously not as big a church, who are giving you permissions for abortion and gay marriage, you're not really listening to them. Yeah. If that's the message you want to hear, you're still not going to them, but you're going to Pope Francis. Yeah, I know you're right about the way it gets distorted. And uh, Francis would certainly subscribe, I think, to what I just said a few minutes ago, that you're drawn by Christ. You're drawn by his beauty, by the joy of those who live it. But then when you search out the reasons for that joy, you're going to find a form of life. And the church has a name for that. It's conversion. It's metanoia. It's being drawn now to follow Christ all the way to the cross. So it means self-denial. It means radical change. So you don't end with, oh, yeah, it's wonderful. God is love and grace, and I've been invited, and isn't that great? End of the argument. See, that's what my generation got too much of. It was that message. We heard God is love. <laughs> Trust me, every of my generation, we heard that message. We didn't hear the message of conversion, you know. Now, therefore, as you're drawn to that love, you must become conformed to that love. And that means self-gift and self-offering, even to the point of death. We didn't hear that part of the message, which is why a lot of people my generation fell away. Because, all right, I get it. God is love. He loves me. I'm fine. Now I'll live any way I want. We're just the contrary. It's because God is love and, and his love wants to invade your life. Now you've got to become conformed to it. Now we talk about conversion right. and all the hard work involved in conversion, authentic metanoia, you know. Uh, Jesus' opening words, you know, repent, <laughs> change, right. turn around. Right. So the kingdom is at hand. God is love, all that. Therefore, repent, become conformed to it. we got to get better, and we have been getting better at that part of the message. Um, and the media, see, doesn't like that message. They like you know, the easier part of it, frankly, you know, God is grace and love and come in and welcome. And 
But now you're in the house. You know, through the greatness of your love, we have access to your house, the psalm says. Beautiful. To me, that's, that's the primacy of grace. God's love invites us into the house. Okay, now you're in the house. Now, live like someone who, <laughs> who belongs in this house. There are rules in this house. <laughs> But that's true. If you're invited by a, by a great person, right. come to my party. Come yeah. to this gathering. You, you, I've been, by the greatness of your love, I've been invited to your house. Okay. But now I can't act like a barbarian in your house. I, I now conform myself to the beauty and order of your house. See, and that's the second half of it that we're not as good at. And that's, I guess, what's been so, uh, I don't know, startling or it's, it's making impact on me. You feel like Pope Francis is getting people to look in the house. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe instead, I know some of the traditional Catholics in this country maybe have been battling a, a battle for a long time, and some of them are taking issue with the, the messaging or the style, but it's like, I kind of feel like, well, let's capitalize on how he's reaching people. No, right. It's a strategy thing. I, I've said people shouldn't read it as a substantial change. It isn't. Um, he's not proposing any change, obviously, in Catholic teaching or doctrine. It's an evangelical strategy issue. And I agree with him. I think you lead with joy. You lead with beauty. You don't lead with the moral issues. Because our, in our postmodern culture, you know, where the truth is relative, uh, the good is your good or my good, there's no uh, objective good. If you lead with doctrine or morality, people tend to turn you off right away. You're just oppressive. They'll read it in a kind of deconstructionist way. They'll try to deconstruct the power moves going on behind that. So it's like we just get outmaneuvered right away. That's why lead with the beautiful, but then make this next move I've been talking about. Draw people in. I use the example of Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited a lot. Remember that great story, I think the greatest Catholic novel of the 20th century? Um, Charles Ryder is the narrator, and he's like a lot of people today, kind of a cool rationalist, a cool agnostic. What's he drawn to? He's drawn by the beauty of the house. You know, Brideshead names this beautiful manor house uh, inhabited by a Catholic family, but it's symbolic in the novel of the church. Christ is head of his bride, the church, and all that. So Brideshead is the church. What draws him first is the beauty of it. He's an, he's an art historian. He's an artist. It's the, it's the sheer beauty on display in the house. But then in the course of the novel, he realizes the moral demand of the house, and then finally he realizes that the house represents a whole philosophy of life. And he becomes a Catholic finally by the end. Mm-hmm. But the first step was beauty. Then the good, the moral demand, and then finally the truth. Mm-hmm. I think that's the right rhythm, you know. And that's how I read Francis. So it's not, he's not saying don't worry about morality and about doctrine. Not at all. But lead with the beautiful. And one last question. Now, what would you tell... Uh, maybe priests, uh, laymen that are have a special mission apostolate kind of in the culture, and uh, they might feel discouraged. They feel like they're not getting any kind of headway. Um, how, how should they approach? What kind of attitude should they have towards their work in evangelization? I'd say a couple of simple things. One is pray, 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 pray. So prayer has got to be fundamental. You have to find the center. You've got to be rooted in Christ. So pray. Secondly, I'd say look for the semina verbi. Go back to the patristic thing. Look for the seeds of the word in the culture. They're there. Maybe distorted, maybe unintegrated, all that. But they're there. Find them and start with that. Thirdly, I'd say use the Augustinian principle, which is uh, our hearts are wired for God. Everyone's heart is wired for God. And that's why we're unhappy when 
we get our infinite desire hooked onto something finite. That's sin. We, we mistake the creature for the creator, as Augustine said. Everyone's in that boat, it seems to me. Everyone's looking for joy. Real joy is found in God. We know that. They don't know it fully. They know they're following a weird path that's making them unhappy. Tell them about that. Say, look where you are. You're unhappy, aren't you, as you're trying to make money or sex or pleasure or power the center of your life. I've got what's going to make you happy, which is to conform your life to God's infinite love. So I, I think those three things, you know, are really key. Pray, pray, pray. Look for the Semyon of Araby, and take seriously the Augustinian anthropology. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank You're you. Welcome. My great pleasure. <laughs>